mainstream of the world. So anyway, we'll go through this and we'll get a sense of at least this example of the components or the uh, steps. They're not quite steps, but there's something like steps on this gradual training track. So the Buddha is staying in the land of the Angas, near the Angan town named Asapura. Asa means horse, and Pura means villager, town, or city. So maybe this is a city where they raise horses or something like that, the horse city. And there the Buddha was talking to the mendicants. And this translation is from Bhikkhu Sujato, who likes to de-genderize the original, which many of us appreciate. So he uses mendicants instead of monks, which actually is probably pretty accurate. The Buddha would give these discourses. Oftentimes, probably there were uh, lay people and monastics there, or even if it was only monastics, most likely uh, not just male monastics. So he says to them, people label you as ascetics, or another translation could be recluses. And when they ask you what you are, you claim to be ascetics. So given that this is what you're called, and this is what you claim, this is how you should train. So what is it really that defines an ascetic or a recluse? In other words, you're, you're looked to as a holy person. Now, you better live that way, and this is how you live that way. And of course, the goal of this gradual path is always awakening. So this is what leads to awakening. And, and, and in addition to, um, you know, you should act in accordance with what you claim to be, he talks about the requisites of robes, alms, food, lodgings, and medicine. Uh, that, that are given to mendicants who are acting the way they should act uh, to be that that offering is very fruitful and beneficial to the people who offer it. And you don't want to waste your chance to practice. And this is something we can all think about. We don't want to waste this chance. We've been exposed to the Dhamma we have teachers that we can look to. We have the texts of the Buddha's words, and we're so fortunate. So now he talks about what are the things that make a person an ascetic or a holy person, and he said, you start. He starts with, we will have conscience, and prudence. 
And I put the Pali words in here. Hiri and Otipa. Now, these are really precise technical terms, you might say. Hiri, or in this case, it's, it's translated as conscience used to often be translated as moral shame. And in the, in the wisdom publishing books, that's usually the way you'll see it. And that definitely brings up um, something for us in the West, I think, that really takes us in the wrong direction. Because it's not about shame or guilt or anything like that, but it is conscience. It's it's a sensitivity to really recognizing what's right and what's wrong and not wanting to do things that are really beneath us. That we are more virtuous than that. And to have that sense of conscience. And if we do something that is, you might say, below our standard, that we now make amends for and determine not to do it again. And that is part of this idea of hearing. And also otipa, otipa, the prudence. This is really a, you don't want the consequences of doing something immoral. So the, it's a, used to be or often translated as moral dread, like you dread the outcome, the karma that comes back for, or just the, what we know are the ordinary, visible or experienceable results of our actions. So this is, this is where it starts. You know, develop that conscience, develop that care. And to some degree, I think developing the, the wisdom that helps us know, you know, what is, where is this going to lead, what I'm doing now. And we think about that and we adjust accordingly. And he says, now you might think that if I have conscience and prudence, that's enough. We've achieved the goal of a life as an ascetic. There's nothing more to do. And you might rest content with just that much. But I'll tell you, I'll declare to you, this, you, if you who seek to be true ascetics um, do not lose sight of the goal of the ascetic life while well, there's still more to do. So you're not awakened yet. And so this we're going to see in every every step, every paragraph. Don't stop here. You know. And then the next one is that our behavior, our bodily behavior, will be pure, clear, and open neither inconsistent nor secretive. So that's, you know, just taking that in. Whatever I do, physical action, it's pure and clear and open. 
You never want to hide anything. And, and I'm not inconsistent. I continue to follow that standard. And then, when that's the case, we still, we don't glorify ourselves or put others down on account of our own purified bodily conduct or behavior. And then we see the same thing. We don't stop there. We do the same thing for our verbal behavior and for our mental behavior. And then also for our livelihood. So this will, livelihood will be pure, clear, open, neither inconsistent nor secretive. We won't glorify ourselves or put others down on account of our pure livelihood. So, when you think about this, this is, you know, so of course this is the, the virtue that is the, the ground, the bedrock of the path. And of course, to have that virtue, we have to have that hiriyanotapa, that conscience and prudence, that we know what's right and what's wrong and we're we're following it. We have that sensitivity. We don't want to do things that are wrong. We don't want to do things that are going to harm others or harm ourselves. And you know, this is something that there are lots of, um, you know, kind of situations to consider. Uh, it's not always straightforward sometimes, I suppose. I saw something interesting. I was um, helping out at a retreat at Spare Rock uh, last week, I guess, and uh, they have this thing where they um, people give up their phones. It's not required. It's it's a voluntary thing, but it's like a ritual of baskets down in the front. Some of you know about this, and people come up and they put their phones in the basket, and the basket gets taken away somewhere. How did you feel? <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of glad we're not doing that. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, there's a lot of stuff on that phone, you know. So, so I saw this, I was sitting there in the baskets, or, uh, you know, right there in one of the baskets, and people are coming up, and in general, I was just not looking, but my eyes were kind of lowered, and I saw this woman come up, and she had a scarf on, like, all the way down, and her hands were behind the scarf, and she put her hands in a basket, but nothing came out of them. <laughs> <laughs> And she walked away. And I was like, hmm. I mean, who is she trying to deceive? <laughs> I don't care if she leaves her phone or not. 
maybe somebody she's in a retreat with, or I don't know. But it's not pure, clear, and open. If we do things and say things, and then if somebody finds out, or somebody walks into the room that you don't want to, maybe you're talking about them, and you feel really bad, this is the kind of thing to really notice in our life. You know, like, can I say this in a way that if somebody walked in, I wouldn't feel like I immediately have to backtrack and, you know, change my attitude. And the moral virtue is so crucial to our awakening. There's another sutta out there, I don't know if you've read it yet, Making a Wish. Um, we might have a chance to look at it tomorrow or we can read it. Um, and it shows how the whole path unfolds naturally from virtue. And uh, to a large degree, it's about this pure, clear, and open. And that's because that's how it feels inside. You know, if we're really, it doesn't mean we don't make mistakes, and it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to have a lapse in judgment. It's okay to um, succumb to pressure. It's okay to just make a bad decision. It's okay to make mistakes. But when it happens, then we want to immediately admit it. In the holy life, in the monastic life, it's confessing it. You immediately find someone, you come clean on it, that clearing the slate. And so many of you know we do, we call it confession. It's, you know, with, with another nun every, about every two weeks. And you talk about whatever it is that's been going on that isn't quite in line, not quite pure, in line. So at least it's clear and it's open. And you commit to, you know, like it's recommit to, you know, handling it in a better way. And it's over. Now, of course, there are certain things that are so heavy. If I intentionally kill a human being, it's much harder, especially in robes, and you're not allowed to be um, monastic, or at least not a fully ordained bhikkhuni or bhikkhu anymore if you intentionally kill a human being. That's pretty understandable. You're so far away from the holy life by that time. It's going to take some real time to recover. I hope this is making sense, and um, maybe there are examples that you're thinking of that, you know, where are the gray areas, where are the things where it's like, well, I don't know what's appropriate. A lot of times people bring up the kinds of questions like, what if someone, you know, is, is trying to hunt somebody down and you know, if you tell them the truth about what's happening, someone will get really harmed, those kinds of things. And it's like, 
Well, I think when we really are day by day evaluating our own physical actions, verbal actions, and mental actions in this way that's wise and kind, pure, clear, and open, if we come into a situation like that, we'll have a sense of what the right thing is to do. The purity of the mind is crucial. And sometimes we can get pretty creative if we're determined. So just some food for thought. As we're practicing, we want to take this idea of not um, glorifying ourselves or putting others down quite seriously. Because, you know, any kind of puffing ourselves up is going to be a, a, a barrier, you know, inhibitor to our progress. Thinking we're better than other people can often uh, karmically put us in a position where we're making some of the same choices and maybe some of the same mistakes as we see other people making. So we want to be careful. Here again, I have some heriotypa uh, around it. And recognize that this human life is pretty messy and challenging. And what we want to do is have the heart to be kind and compassionate and clear in ourselves and support others to do the same thing and to recover. So the Buddha is very much about rehabilitation. And it's interesting in, in Buddhism, even uh, Mara, the evil one, so apparently we are told Mahamogalana, he talked about it himself in the suttas, was Mara in the past. So in Buddhism, it's not like there's this, just an individual who, it's a role that different people take, right? Whether it's Brahma or Tamara or it's a Buddha, there's not just one over the millennia or whatever it is, different living beings take that role. And apparently Mahamogalana had been Mara in the past, and he talks about that. So how does someone go from being Mara, the evil one, to being one of the Buddha's, you know, like, um, most influential and um, trustworthy and, you know, star disciples? And it's just, it's a, it's a tribute, I think, to rehabilitation. No matter what we've done, no matter how many times we've done it, we can recover spiritually. There is a path of spiritual recovery for everything. And even when we say, well, you can't be a fully ordained monastic again if you've done certain things, but you can be a novice and know people who actually have you know, come back to the monastery, stay in the monastery, and it's fine. Uh, there, the practice is still there to go, you know, as far as you can go. 
with support um, and respect from the people around you. Because we change, and we're able to change, and if we weren't able to change, we're not going to get enlightened. So don't be afraid to change for the better. So the Buddha says, okay, purifying, having your hearing and your ultipa, purifying your physical behavior, your verbal behavior, your mental behavior, your livelihood. And we can talk more about specifics about what these mean if you like, if you have questions there about these. Let's talk about them. What is there that's more to do? And then he says, we will restrain our sense stores. So sense restraint. So now we've shifted from what we're putting out there to what we're taking in, which is hugely helpful with regard to what we're putting out there. <coughs> you know, when when we watch, when we watch a lot of violence or um, sexual material, it's gonna, you know, rev up and defile us. And so, when we restrain the senses, we don't get caught up and stoke fires in ourselves that are harmful and troublesome. So the way the Buddha talks about it is you see something and you don't get caught up in the, in the features and details of it. So when you see something, I mean, avert your eyes, you know, there are certain things that are going to you know, really bring up unwholesome, unskillful <coughs> qualities. And, and here it's called bad unskillful qualities of covetousness and displeasure. And that they might be overwhelming if we leave ourselves unrestrained. So I don't know if you can think of examples of, you know, you see certain things. And of course he goes through all the senses. You hear certain things, taste, smell, touch, think put energy into thinking, or down a certain track. A lot of times that can be like, this person did this thing to me. And we, come, we go through it again and again and again and again. We build up more anger, more resentment. Maybe puffing ourselves up more, you know. And, or, you know, building up desire in ourselves. So the senses um, are really the source of building up the frames of our defilements. That's how we know the world. That's where we take in all of the input. So we have this opportunity in the practice is to really 
pay attention to the results. We watch a certain kind of movie. What does it do to your mind? It can be something really strong and obvious, or it can be subtle. Do you want that in your mind? Do you want things that you take in through your senses to get integrated into what's going on in your mind and then coming out again in some way? These are good things to consider. And the Buddha also talks about, after that, what's more to do. He talks about um, being moderate in eating. We'll not eat too much. We'll only eat after reflecting on our food. Let that um, standard kind of reflection of the meal that the monastics use right out of the suttas. Not for fun, not for pleasure, not for fattening, not for beautification, only to sustain this body. Uh, it says here to avoid harm and to support spiritual practice. Another thing to consider. Like what is it? What it, I like the way the Buddha covered everything. He talked about what helps us be healthy and stable in our mind based on how we're taking care of our body and how we're living and in all aspects. And so, you know, how much is how much food is the right amount and what kinds are really good for me. And it's not always just like, oh, it's going to be 100% healthy. I don't know how you are, but I seem to do better with a little bit of stuff that's not so healthy. I don't understand that completely, but there's something there, so you really get to know yourself. And like I said earlier, and I probably keep saying it, the Buddha always talked, he really looked at cause and effect, trying to see, well, what is the effect on my body and my mind? You know, when I drink coffee or when I, um, you know, eat sugar or whatever it is, and I'm not and it can say of those, by the way. I, I, I use coffee sometimes, and I use, eat sugar sometimes, and, you know, just noticing what the result is. And then seeing if we can encourage ourselves to, you know, use what's helpful as, as much as we can, without getting too crazy strict about things. It's also, you know, like you don't want to take it too much to extremes. I like the Ajahn Chai, as he said a lot, you know, what's the right amount? What's the right amount of food? What's the right amount of sleep? The next thing here is wakefulness. I think, unless I missed it. Yeah, dedicated, be dedicated to wakefulness. I don't believe that that means, you know, you're supposed to just sleep two or three hours a night. I've heard people say that. Um, that's not how I see it in the suttas. The Buddha actually said, and he probably says it right here, yeah. Uh, in the evening, continue to practice walking and sitting meditation in the middle of the night. Lie down in the lion's posture, so laying on your right side. 
um, mindful and aware, focused on the time of getting up in the last part of the night, get up and continue practicing, purifying our, our mind from obstacles. And um, in the commentary it says that first part of the night is from like 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. So go to bed around 10 p.m. or a little later. And then 10 to 2 is the middle part of the night. You stay asleep and then wake up sometime during the last part, which is 2 to 6. So, you know, it's like it's possible to get something close to 8 hours of sleep, even for a mendicant when asked following exactly the template. But it's also really true that the Buddha laid these things down, but you don't have to take it 100% literally. You gotta look at what your system needs, what your body needs, and changes. Of course, you all know this as we age, as we go through periods of, you know, fluctuations in our health. But I think the main, the main thrust of this point is how much is enough, and what does it do to my body and my mind? If we sleep too much, if we uh, don't get enough exercise. If we eat certain things, it can really bring us down low energy, low, um, low mental state. And so, you know, what is it that helps us to be happy, you know, um, energized, you know, healthy, nothing's perfect, but attending to know what's actually going to be beneficial. And then the next thing more to do, spend time in seclusion. Give yourself a long time. Give yourself time to just be still. And of course, we all have a meditation practice, but you know, really paying attention to and like giving myself um, a good situation, a good context, a good environment within which to practice to the best of my ability in the situation I have. And then the Buddha. Now, finally, the Buddha is talking about meditation. I'm at the bottom of page two for anybody who's uh, falling. Sitting down with your body erect, establishing mindfulness, giving up covetousness for the world, meditate with a heart rid of covetousness, or another way to translate it is longing. Giving up longing, longing for anything, the desire to want something, the desire for something. Now that doesn't necessarily happen just because we'd like it to. Notice that, I guess. So, what I've noticed is that if my mind is really interested in the meditation object, and I can settle and get very still, I mean, earlier when we were meditating, it was one of those moments when I heard Ayachitananda moving a little bit, and I thought, oh no, not the bell. <laughs> and 
course, there are other times, like this morning was one of them for me. It's like, when is the bell going? <laughs> and you think, okay, uh, she's been in ropes for 18 years. Is that still going on? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there are lots of different moving parts in all of our lives, and we um, need to give ourselves the support that's helpful for actually being able to establish mindfulness and become quiet. And what I was going to say about letting go of the desire for something, or the desire to get rid of something, which is the other side of it here, uh, giving up ill will, which is like, I don't like it, I want to push it away. I find that happens most easily by really enjoying the meditation object, really letting myself, you know, completely immerse myself in it, and then it's and then you, if, you, if you're still in a state where you can't reflect on something, you reflect, is there any desire here? Is there any, any wish to like, get rid of anything? It's like, no. You know, when, you, when you notice that, it's really quite beautiful. No, there's no wanting, there's no wanting to get rid of. And that's what he means, that's what the Buddha is talking about here. And then he says, the giving up of your will also means that you're full of compassion for all living beings. And then he goes through the other hindrances as well, and you can also notice that you're at that stage where oh, there's, there's nothing I want, there's nothing I want to get rid of. Is, is the mind dull or drowsy? It's like, no, you're bright, you're clear. It says you're perceiving light, mindful and aware, cleansing the mind of dullness and drowsiness, giving up restlessness and remorse, we meditate without restlessness, the mind is peaceful inside, cleansing the mind of restlessness and remorse, giving up doubt, we meditate out gone beyond doubt, not undecided about skillful qualities. Cleansing your mind out. So you know what's skillful, you know what's unskillful, you know whether or not the state of the mind is wholesome, whether or not you have any of these hindrances or you don't. And so much of this is based on virtue. That that pure, clear, open virtue allows us to have a mind that doesn't have any kind of grit in the gears. And so, you know, there's of course a lot of um, written about how to work with the hindrances and, you know, that's a whole um, area of examination. And we can talk about specifics if you want. But this is the step that the Buddha is putting here. And then he gives these beautiful similes, which you may have heard before, with regard to sense desire. 
here called covetousness, but it's also uh, the same thing as sense desire. The simile is, suppose a person who's gotten into debt were to apply themselves to work and their efforts proved successful. They'd pay off the original loan and they'd have enough left over to support their partner. And thinking about this, they'd be filled with joy and happiness. So when we know, hey, there's nothing I want, I'm like, here I am content with no longing at all. Woohoo! <laughs> it's just really so freeing. You really be happy. And the next one is about the, the ill will or the negativity, the, um, the desire to push away. Suppose a person is sick, suffering, and gravely ill. They lose their appetite and get physically weak. Have you ever had that? Yeah, I know I have. Um, times like that, you kind of feel like you're never going to get over a flu or something. But here, I guess we have. I can't remember here we are. Um, they, after some time, they recover from that illness and regain their appetite and their strength. And thinking about this, they'd be filled with joy and happiness. So we know how it feels to have ill will, negativity. And when we're in meditation and we see that that's completely gone, there's so much relief, joy, and happiness. And for the, the third one, the dullness and drowsiness, the simile is, suppose a person was imprisoned in jail, but after some time they were released from jail, safe and sound, with no loss of wealth. Thinking about this, they'd be filled with joy and happiness. So I think that dullness and drowsiness, you know, it's almost like you're, you're just maybe looking through the bars, you know, and you just kind of can't, um, you feel so pulled down, maybe kind of trapped in that. And when that lifts, um, there's some happiness and relief. And then restlessness, he says, suppose the person was a bond servant, so you wanted that you have some debt you have to pay off to someone. They would not be their own master, but indentured to another, unable to go where they wish. But after some time, they'd be free from servitude. They would be their own master, not indentured to another an emancipated individual able to go where they wish. And thinking about this, they'd be filled with joy and happiness. And then the last one is related to doubt. Suppose there was a person with wealth and property who was traveling along a desert road, but after some time they crossed over the desert, safe and sound, with no loss of wealth, thinking about this, they'd be filled with joy and happiness. That doubt really keeps us in this uncertainty, um, this discomfort of what will happen, what should I do, and that's when when you like are at the point where that can be set aside, laid aside, you're finished with it. There is this joy and happiness. 
and joy and happiness is talked about continually in the suttas as the, the basis, the cause, the requirement for deep meditation. So when all these five hindrances are gone, give it up. It says, a mendicant regards them as dead or disease, a prison, slavery, and the desert crossing. But then when these, when they are not given up, but when they are given up, inside of ourselves, then we regard this as freedom from death, good health, release from prison emancipation, and a place of sanctuary at last. So then we might think, oh, he doesn't say that. Here he says, once you have gotten rid of these five hindrances, and the mind turns inward so that we're not affected by sensual pleasures or unskillful qualities, then you can go into deep meditation. He talks about the jhanas. And here again, there are lovely similes for the first absorption of the first jhana, where there's rapture and bliss. They drench, steep, fill, and spread their body with rapture and bliss that is resultant from seclusion, from turning inwards. There's no part of the body that's not spread with rapture and bliss or seclusion. It's like when a, a deft, a really skillful bathroom attendant. This is an interesting image from the time of the Buddha. There's a person there um, where people bathe and he has soap powder. And he puts water on the powder and he mixes it and gets it into a ball that is completely saturated but does not drip. And this is the Buddha's image for how our body feels when PT has um, completely pervaded the entire body. So PT being what's often translated as rapture or joy. We'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow. Um, at some point, I'm not sure if it's tomorrow. And this is experienced in different ways uh, by different people. It can be a tingle, it can be a warmth. It's something that you can probably experience. And it's not, it's a mental feeling, but you can also experience it through the body. And this is why you know, the Buddha is talking about it pervading the whole body. You feel it, you sense it in the body. But it comes from spiritual energy. So when, when we have this spiritual uplift that, that starts with virtue, clarity, and all of these other things that lead up here in this list. Then there's this, um, you might say, kind of tuning in to spiritual experience. And you 
can actually feel that in different ways. And so there's a list in um, the Sudhimaga, and it's it's very much uh, the same kind of thing that happens when you, you work with energy. But it comes at those times when you're uplifted spiritually, so you know that this this is something that happens when my mind is tuned in to the spiritual experience. I don't know if you have examples of that in your experience that makes that clear. But it's it's good to know that this is not some you know crazy rare thing that you have to practice 30 years to get to. It's something that happens because we let go and we are allowing ourselves to let go of the hindrances, let go of the um, the striving, and feel that uplift of spiritual energy. And as the meditation goes deeper, the Buddha gives similar kinds of similes. You know, these descriptions of the levels of depth of meditation, the jhanas, is the same over and over again in the suttas. You know, when the mendicant has, and in this last one on page three, where he says, the mendicant drenches, steeps, fills, and spreads their body with rapture and bliss form of seclusion. There's no part of the body that's not experiencing that. And then you go deeper, and you're not having to make an effort anymore to focus on your meditation object. Then they, um, it says there's this rapture and bliss more of immersion. Now you're really, really completely immersed in meditation. And here he uses that they drench, steep, fill, and spread their body with rapture and bliss more of immersion. No part of the body is, is not included in that. It's like a deep lake fed by spring water. There's no inlet to the east, west, north, or south, and no rainfall to replenish it from time to time, but the stream of cool water welling up in the lake, so like from the bottom is spring, drenches, steeps, fills, and spreads throughout the lake, and that's how it feels in the body at that level, that state of meditation. It's pretty lovely. The Buddha also says that if we don't experience this kind of thing, it's really hard to give up sensual pleasure. Because we don't realize that there's something other than sensual pleasure to counteract pain. Most of the time when we feel 
discomfort, we want to go to sensual pleasure to feel better. But then there's always that bouncing back and forth. But if we go to a spiritual experience, that uplift carries us up and beyond that kind of constant going back and forth between pleasure and pain. And then in the next level, the fading, the, the, the very exciting, more, um, it's a little coarser feeling of rapture starts to fade away. And then the mendicant, the practitioner, enters and remains in the third absorption where there's this equanimity. That's what you're really meditating on. You're always mindful and fully aware through all of this. And the, the drenched feet fill and spread their body with the bliss, free of rapture. So this is the Pali Sukha. It's another way to uh, experience joy and happiness. But it's, it's, um, it's more subtle and more stable than piti, than rapture. And again, there's no part of the body that is not spread with this feeling. It's like a pool with blue water lilies, or pink or white lotuses, and some of them sprout and grow in the water without rising above it, thriving underwater. From the tip of the root, they are drenched, steeped, filled, and soaked with cool water. There's no part of them that's not soaked with cool water. And in the same way, the body of a person is drenched, steeped, filled, and spread with this bliss, free, free of rapture, this kind of very stable, sweet, sukha, happiness. And then the next stage is going beyond the duality of pleasure and pain. Um, having given up happiness and sadness, this is the fourth absorption where there's pure equanimity and mindfulness. Now here they're spreading their body with the pure bright mind. So there's so much brightness in the mind. And that just radiates through the whole system. He says it's like someone sitting wrapped from head to toe with a white cloth. There's no part of the body that's not spread over with white cloth. In the same way, they they sit spreading their body through with bright, pure mind, pure, bright mind. There's no part that's not spread with the pure, bright mind. When the mind has become immersed in samadhi like this, purified, bright, flawless, rid of corruptions, pliable, workable, steady, and imperturbable, then you can turn the mind to reflection. And what we see here is the Buddha talking about what happened to him when he was enlightened, and that it was enlightenment, seeing um, his past lives 
many kinds of past lives with features and details. Suppose a person was to leave their home village and go to another village. From that village they'd go to yet another village, and from that village they'd return to their home village. They'd think, I went from my home to another village, there I stood like this, I sat like that, I spoke like this, or I kept silent like that. From that village I went to yet another village, and there too I stood like this, sat like that, spoke like this, and kept kept silent like that, and from that village I returned to my home village. In the same way, a mendicant recollects the many kinds of past lives with features and details. What our mind has become immersed in samadhi like that, purified, bright, flawless, rid of corruptions, pliable, workable, steady, and imperturbable. They extended toward the knowledge of birth and death of sentient beings. I don't know if you've ever read these passages that have these descriptions. It shows up in a variety of places in the suttas. But it really gives you the sense of the profundity of what happened to the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment. How he really saw the expanse of the human condition and the way things work spiritually. And for the Buddha, there was no kind of real divide between what we experience in the human realm and what's experienced in other realms. He saw the whole thing. And that's what he's reporting to us. It's not something he dreamed up or uh, absorbed from his culture. It's his direct experience of how this works. So, So with this clairvoyance, seeing other sentient beings passing away and being reborn, inferior and superior, beautiful and ugly, in a good place or a bad place, then one understands how sentient beings are reborn according to their actions. Suppose there were two houses with doors, a person with clear eyes standing in between them, would see people entering and leaving a house and wandering to and fro. Another way it can be described is like you're seeing a hallway with doors on each side. Someone, you see how they're living. They go through one door, they pass through the next door, and you see how they're reborn. And then the Buddha was able to really understand karma so completely. And we may have in our practice, limited, uh, you know, kind of direct experience of this kind of thing, or even if we're paying attention, I don't know, we have to, like, I don't know how far I can take you with that. Um, anyway, there are people who also see this. It's not only the Buddha. So then the Buddha goes into with a mind that's become immersed in samadhi like this, etc. And they extend it towards the knowledge of the ending of the defilements. So after all that, 
understanding the, the Four Noble Truths. This is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the practice that leads to the cessation of suffering. Understanding these are defilements, the origin of the defilements, the cessation of defilements, and the practice that leads to the cessation of defilements. Knowing and seeing like this, the mind is freed from the defilements of sensuality, desire to be reborn, and ignorance. And when they're freed, they know they're freed. There's always that realization and that looking at it, knowing it happened, understanding that full. They understand there's not going to be any more rebirth. The mind is completely clear, calm. There's nothing to want or want to get rid of anymore. There's no desire, no craving that pushes um, the stream of consciousness you might think of as you into a new, into a new existence. So suppose that in a mountain glen there was a lake that was transparent, clear, and unclouded. A person with clear eyes standing on the bank would see the clams and mussels and pebbles and gravel and schools of fish swimming about and staying still. And they'd think, this lake is transparent, clear and unclouded. And here are the clams and mussels and pebbles and gravel and schools of fish swimming about and staying still. In the same way, when a practitioner truly understands this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, this is the practice that leads to the cessation of suffering, they understand there is no return to any state of existence. And this is someone who's called an ascetic, a holy person, a bathed initiate, initiate someone who's really and cleansed, you might say, a knowledge master, a scholar, a noble one, a perfected one. And then he says that how is a medicine and a setup? They've quelled the bad and skillful qualities that are corrupting, leading to future lives, hurting, resulting in suffering and future rebirth, old age, and death. That's how one is a medicate one is an ascetic or is a holy person a spiritual um, a person is taken in all the way. So it explains these terms. How is one a Brahman that banished the balance of qualities? How is one a bathed initiative? They've bathed off the balance of the qualities. How is one a knowledge master? They've known the balance of the qualities. How is one a scholar? <laughs> this is kind of funny. They've scoured off the balance of the qualities. And how is an indicated noble one? They're far away from balance of the qualities. And how is a medical perfected one? They're far away from the bad and skillful qualities that are corrupting, leading to future lives, hurtful, resulting in suffering and future rebirth, old age and death. 
and then you can feel satisfied and happy with what they're going to sell. So if you've never looked at the sutras, that's a pretty heavy one to take in on the first go, or first or second or third or however many, <laughs> maybe. Um, I'd like to know if you have any questions. Can I have a question for you? You don't have to answer it um, to me, but do you know what to do? Do you know what to do next in your practice? And, you know, maybe this sutta has something in it that kind of tickles uh, something in you that says, oh, here is a place to look deeper. Here is a place where I can investigate. Here is something I haven't experienced yet. Maybe I can open myself up to this. You know, I know someone who had an experience where they had a very strong reaction to someone that they met and had no reason at all to have this strong reaction. And they were met, they, they were advised, well, sometime when you're meditating, you know, and you feel like it's the right time, just ask, what this is about, and they did, and in their meditation, and this, they were flooded with this memory of a past situation with this person in a previous lifetime, and that started for them um, an exploration that brought them to at least some level of understanding of karma and rebirth, like what happened then, and why are these feelings here now? And what can I do to resolve that and let that go? And it's it's really like uh, interesting when we at least think, well, maybe this is how it works, and maybe it's not so unavailable to us. Sometimes it's helpful to observe, you know, observe ourselves and what we came into this life with, our own preferences and interests, desires, propensities. And sometimes it's useful to observe it in the people we're close to. And just having that openness and that curiosity, you never know what might arise in meditation to help bring us more understanding. But if we are closed, if we're closed, like, no, I don't believe in that. No. I don't think that's true. But we really don't have any evidence that it's not true then maybe it's worth uh, softening around that, opening up to the possibility that the Buddha might have actually 
embracing it the way it is. And of course, you know, the, the earlier stages on the gradual path are a lot easier to kind of verify for ourselves. You know, we do things that are harmful to someone else and we see the bad results in our, in our own minds and in our own lives and so on. But the Buddha, I think, is saying all along here, you are on this track and this is the experience, this is how it unfolds. Keep working, keep walking in that direction. And sometimes we can have real doubts about whether we want to get enlightened. Do I really, maybe I want to live again, or maybe whatever, I don't care, or something. But, you know, if you really start to see how incredibly wise the Buddha was, and like I said, on all these practical matters, you can just, yeah, that's true. You know, if I overeat, my meditation isn't great, I don't feel good, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, whatever way we, we can experience the, the pieces of this gradual training and understand its value. I'm going to open up to the parts we haven't experienced yet. I think there may be some um, wonderful discoveries. The Buddha certainly felt like we could do this. He said otherwise he wouldn't teach it. Thank you.